Welcome to RevOps Corner, where we talk about how B2B SaaS companies scale through revenue operations by interviewing amazing guests and sharing what we see in the trenches every day here at Union Square Consulting. Welcome to RevOps Live number 13. WTF is BizOps with our special guest, Rachel Najan, who is an experienced operations professional specializing in small business series A to C, although you're working in a much larger company right now. And you've been a VP of BizOps, of operations overall, an operations leader four times. And I'm really excited to dive into this topic today so you can educate our audience and me as well on all the nuances of business operations that are maybe new to some of us in RevOps. Great. Looking forward to it. I think uh, I think we'll have some good perspectives in the room. I'm excited to dive into it. For everybody listening in, I'm Eddie Reynolds. I'm the founder and CEO of Union Square Consulting. I also have two of my colleagues here, Sarah Ra, who is our event producer, and Jerry Marletta, who runs our delivery team and does all the hard work that we that I make the promises to our customers we're going to do. <laughs> good afternoon, everyone. So we're a revenue operations as a, as a service shop. That's why we do this, this podcast and live event to talk about all things revenue operations. And our real goal for our audience here is to educate folks on how they can improve revenue operations in their company, as well as make steps forward in their careers. And so the reason we put today's event together is because many people in RevOps think about where they can go from here? How do you evolve from a RevOps manager into a director, into a VP, and potentially further into business operations or eventually a COO? And I'm really excited to dive into this with you, Rachel, because you have so much expertise that, that I don't have here. And I'm excited to dive in and ask you some questions about it. But what I'm going to do to start us off is I'm going to skip my typical monologue because I'm certainly not an expert in biz ops and give you an opportunity to share your thoughts before I dive in with questions. Great. That sounds that sounds like a great opportunity. It's it's so nice to be here. It's a conversation I'd love to have. If we've had a chance to meet personally, you've probably heard some of my 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 whole spiel before. But as Eddie mentioned, I've I've been an operator for the majority of my career. I came up through the front lines. I was in hospitality for some time. I spent my early startup days as a customer success manager, so managing a book of business and pivoted into operations and kind of never looked back. And with that, I've seen a lot of change in operations function over time. There are a lot of factors that go into that. And there's been a lot of really amazing trends that have come up with revenue operations, business operations, all of the sister functions, marketing ops, um, sales operations, customer operations, client operations. There's a title for everything, and it's a really interesting chapter, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that businesses are becoming super complex, and businesses are going through this fluctuation of being flat, and being matrixed, and being systems-driven, and being tools-driven, and you just end up with some really interesting skill sets and really interesting business problems. So if any of you noticed, Eddie kicked us off yesterday on LinkedIn with a spicy take on revenue operations versus business operations. And it's a good segue into how I think about the ecosystem of operations, which is that revenue operations has an incredibly, incredibly important seat at a table. It is a invaluable function of a business. And I think what makes it a little bit unique is that every single company that sells something which I can't wrap my head around a company that doesn't sell something, needs revenue operations. 
And there's a lot of ways that you can break this up to be effective for your company. So depending on your balance of a PLG model versus a sales-led model, you're going to be a little bit different in the camps of marketing versus sales, et cetera. But at the end of the day, revenue operations in my book from where I sit is a type of business operations. There are two types of really broad operations within a company. The people that execute on what you sell, the folks that are doing customer support, the people that are building your products, um, the people that are deploying your implementations, that's operations. That's the assembly line mindset that has become more and more knowledge worker based over time. Then you have this rise of business operations. It's the folks that are building your systems and your processes and running your tools and kind of keeping the whole show going. That's what I love. And that's where I see the evolution of business operations really coming up. And revenue operations is a very specific type of that function, a role that really understands a piece of the business from start to finish. Ideally, hopefully you're doing true revenue operations, or at least you have a a vision of what it can be. And they understand the pain points. Now, Eddie, do you want me to get into why I don't think they should be at the top or do you want to circle around to that later? Go for it. Okay. So I'm sure I got myself in trouble with a few folks holding this opinion that revenue operations isn't necessarily an executive role. I want to be clear. People that come through revenue operations are really well primed to become future COOs, CROs, people that hold true C-suite titles and true top-down influence because you're seeing parts of the company that are crucial to a company's success. Now that said, where I see the best C-suites are ones that represent the company as most holistically as possible, as simply as possible. And your scope of influence as a true revenue operator, and hopefully again, you are one and you're not sales ops that has a side hustle in Marketo, Your scope of influence is limited to the functions and roles and people and tools that directly influence revenue. Bring it in, sell it, really service the revenue side of your customers and renew it and grow it. You're not talking about the indirect influences, the folks that build the products, the DevOps teams that keep them up and running and scale your infrastructure accordingly, your central processes. And then all the tools that go with that. So a revenue operator isn't touching your HRIS, your enterprise tools like Slack and Google. And if you are, that means you're moonlighting in business operations, which is very, very normal, especially early stage. And therefore, you're not able to see the full picture because you're specialized. So then you get into the specialist versus generalist. There's a lot of different reporting structures that make a ton of sense here. COOs have grown a ton in the last several years. in terms of scope of influence and sophistication of role and really visibility of the role. And I can can nerd out on some statistics with you if that's of interest. But in reality, we're moving away from this, if you sell it, they will come mindset. I think a lot of technical tech companies have been burned over the last few years into, we, we need to understand the full picture. We need to focus on profitability. We need to focus on true scale and having that revenue operations be a very sophisticated piece of it is crucial, but having someone, something that focuses on the big picture and the overall input 
impact of the systems and the real scope of influence within the company is what can make or break any operating team. So give operators a seat at the table, just make sure that they have access to the full picture to make sure that they can maximize their impact. Love it. There's a lot there. There's a lot, there's a lot to unpack. You know, and as you went through that, it sparked my mind on a number of things I wanted to share versus specific questions. And I might launch into that before I go into, into those questions. I think the first thing that this really, that your comments had me thinking about is, is this, no matter what your title is, no matter what the company structure is, there is a job for everything. Meaning like, for example, back in the day before people were buying Salesforce, you'd say, okay, we don't have a CRM. Well, every company has a CRM. Your CRM might be Excel. It might be notepads. It might be a whiteboard on the wall. Every company has a CRM. Every company has RevOps. It may not be done well. There may be no person that does it. It may be the VP of sales that tries to configure Salesforce with the help of an external consultant or learning it themselves, but they're doing it. Um, and so I think that when you look at early stage startups, it's really interesting because it can be very overwhelming to think like, okay, how can we have a VP of RevOps and a head of BizOps and a COO and a CFO. Like there's just only so much money to pay people. And I think that this is the challenge that companies have to navigate and also individuals as they start to get saddled with responsibilities that are outside of their job title. And we all know in startups that saying this isn't part of my job description isn't necessarily a recipe for success. So I think this is a really important perspective to think about as we think about structuring companies and structuring our own careers. Um, Can I and where I... Of course, Jerry. I just want to add to that. The other thing to consider with all of those other factors is depending on the maturity of the organization, whether there's the presence of a marketing function, a sales function, and a CS function or not. To your point where every business has RevOps, well, they do, but how how broad is that RevOps function? If all you're focused on is, is selling and there's very little in terms of marketing or anything post-sale that you're concerned with at the time, sure, it's still RevOps, but functionally what you're doing is just sales ops with hopefully the mindset uh, to expand that over time to fit what we think of as RevOps. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. But then I think that a lot of this, when we talk about operations and correct me if you feel differently, Rachel, in early stage companies is that we're not just trying to figure out what we need today, but we're trying to build for tomorrow. Absolutely. And you're building to be able to iterate. Uh, one of the, the worst things you can do as an operator is build yourself into operational debt or, you know, build a system that's such a wild web that you would have to start from scratch to, to get there. So you are constantly building for two stages ahead, but not any further. Um, but you also are building to understand when will this break? You know, you're buying your first family home. You're not going to buy the, the 10 bedroom house. You're going to buy maybe a two or three bedroom. You're going to move in. And then then you kind of scale your way out of it and you know what generally you're going to scale into. And so that's when you're thinking about kind of just in time mindset, it's what do we need now? And what are we, what are we going to need three, six, nine months from now, especially really early stage, you're changing identities as a company over and over and over again. And so having that understanding of what it looks like today and what it can look like in a couple of months from now is incredibly important to, to keep that flexibility and agility in mind. Yeah. And that's, I think really where I want to take this, this conversation today, 
because if I think about the goal of this, this podcast and event, it's to scratch my own itch that I had seven years ago before starting this company where I left a sales career. I wanted to get into operations. And at the time I naively told the company that I went to work for that I want to be a COO. And I was literally sitting down Googling, what does a COO do? Right. And I went through this journey and what I came to, and I really love to bounce this off of you, Rachel, is that in a very early stage company, you think about like three guys and a dog in their garage. Uh, I read a few articles about this that would say, okay, you've got your CEO, you've got maybe your head developer, what have you, and then you've got a COO. And what inevitably happens is, is that the CEO continues to be the jack of all trades, which is very true for my uh, trajectory over the last six years of founding and building this company. I still do a bunch of different things, including podcasting, as you can see. Um, the head of technology or development, that role is pretty well-defined, right? And then the COO tends to just capture everything else. And this can become really murky water because as the company evolves and grows, that COO starts to work themselves out of a job. They're managing sales and suddenly the company realizes this person doesn't actually know how to do sales. So they hire a VP of sales and the COO is maybe no longer responsible for that, especially because VP of sales comes in and says, I want to report directly to the CEO. Then the next role this happens with and the next role and this three guys and a dog in a garage can evolve into that COO not having a job. And I think that that's really dependent upon the individual, but I think that what we're here today to talk about is, is how someone can evolve their skill set so they can eventually take that role on. And I think about the polar opposite example of this, where Mark Zuckerberg brought in Sheryl Sandberg to be COO. And I, I don't know what she does every day or what she did every day. I haven't read her books, but I can imagine that a big piece of her role was being the adult in the room and coming in and saying, we've got this amazingly scalable company and now we need to put in processes and practices in order to be able to achieve that scale. Um, I guess I'll stop there and I'll leave it for you to respond to that, Rachel, because I'm curious how you view this in a very broad perspective. There are a lot of ways to think about operations leadership roles. It's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting job and you've you've touched on a really important point where there it's by design one of the least rigidly defined roles that you can go into across any business at any size anywhere so SP and fortune 500 companies dictate a little bit of the trends that we see downstream in startups it's a completely different environment but there was a really interesting statistic i was i was reading up on where in 2000 COO titles made up 48% of all roles in C-suites across those companies. And it began to decline over time. And so it hit rock bottom at 32%, I believe. 32% of companies had a COO. The reason for that was that a lot of COOs were advancing into CEO roles. Um, they are being promoted into the CEO seat, which speaks to the point of CEOs have become much more operationally focused over time. They have to. There's also been a big shift in CEOs being more ingrained in companies where before they were a bit more figurehead and they were a bit more, um, they were chairmen of the board, they were kind of the, the mouthpiece of the company and now they've been really being ingrained in the company. We see that in spades, especially in the startup and high growth space. The other big piece is there's been a trend for organizations to continue to get flatter. So when you have a flat organization, everybody has a piece of the operating puzzle and you can no longer rely on 
one person to own all of these branches that run the different parts of the company. And actually there's a little bit of a resurgence of that trend as uh, we're noticing communication breakdowns and everybody's remote and there's, there's a lot of threads to pull. So in 2000, 48% of all large companies had a COO declined down to 32%, which is pretty big decline. And then in 2018, which is that 32% valley, we've now gone back up to 40%. So we're almost back to where we were in just four years of having COOs again. And the reason for that is that companies have become really complex. The rate of change is incredibly fast. The margin for error is smaller than ever. People can switch products on a dime. People can move services in a in a days instead of years. It's it's become really, really um, transient to be a consumer these days. And companies have to respond to that. And that's especially true in SaaS. If you don't like your CRM, you can go buy one tomorrow. Do you want to? No, please don't for the sake of your revenue operations team. But there's a lot of things that you can do uh, to be portable to companies. So COOs are back in a big way because companies are more complex, they're moving more quickly, and COOs begin to kind of share the burden of you kind of have either like an internal face and an external face, and there's different companies have different takes on that. You are owning supply chain um, logistics in a way that we haven't had to in a very, very long time. And a lot of COOs are coming from front lines backgrounds in a way that we haven't seen in a very long time. They're coming up through sales leaders. They're coming up through revenue leaders. They're coming up from folks that have been forward facing versus the old model of your back office. And there are some comments on this too, right? COOs are IT, HR, and that's it. No more. COOs are doing so much nuanced work and they know the market and they know the customer and they know the challenges. And the person in the garage that's growing out of their job, they're going into new jobs. And that's what's so exciting about the field. And that's why these revenue operators that are sharpening their skills on financial acumen and systems and connecting dots are so, so well primed to zoom out and become operators on a larger scale. Yeah. And I think I should be really careful with that three guys and a dog in a garage analogy, because I think that that was <laughs> primarily written by a VC who's thinking about a group of 22 year olds that are fresh out of college. Right. Um, but also, you know, when I think about my own experience where I was about, I think 32, when I took that job and I ended up falling into RevOps, A, because that's what the company needed and B, that's what I knew. I don't know how to, to this day, I don't know how to handle any other operational issues um, beyond RevOps and beyond like running a small company and having to figure it out. Um, but when we think about these st stats, are you sharing stats on all companies in general where the majority of them, 94%, statistically are under a million dollars in revenue, which means if I'm understanding you, you're saying 40% of the C-suite is a COO. That means that there's roughly two people in the C-suite, a CEO and a COO, and sometimes one other person, because we're talking about primarily companies with less than a million in revenue. Is that an accurate takeaway? So, so those stats are from S&P 500 and Fortune 500. They're, okay. they're leading indicators of the market. It is a different space. I will say anecdotally, I've seen the COO shift in a similar direction in the smaller companies. They get a seat at the table faster. VCs are pushing for them more quickly. And one of the interesting 
indicators of that is that a lot of VCs now have operators in-house alongside for it was common for quite some time for them to have specialists. You know, if you you brought on a VC partner, you would have someone that's an expert in sales and they would help foster your sales team and they would do this and that. Operating partners have become more and more common in the VC model as someone that will either supplement your team or help you find your first operator. They can carry a CFO title. They can carry a COO title. They can carry a lot of different titles, which makes a job hunt for an operator a little bit tricky. But uh, it's happening in the smaller scale companies as well, because if you don't get the infrastructure right, you pay for it when you try to have the rocket ship, have that hockey stick growth. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and so how do you think about somebody that is in a RevOps role today, evolving into BizOps and potentially a COO? So again, like I'll use myself as an example, six, seven years ago, when I took this job on, I came in, I didn't even really have a title. I ended up doing just RevOps. It's all I spent all day long on. And then if I had wanted to continue down that path and continue to be a COO, I would eventually need to learn all the other skills that is biz ops and everything else. So how might someone in that situation today navigate that career growth and try to learn the skills that they need to then evolve into biz ops and potentially ultimately a COO? So there's a few ways you can go about it. And the biggest piece of kind of scaling out of revenue operations and a lot of revenue operations, a lot of revenue operators are doing more than rev ops. How often are you owning systems that cross outside of your world and integrations that have less to do with the actual revenue drivers? It's very, very common, especially early stage. And it's part of the beauty of the role. The best way to kind of zoom out is to get really curious about the other departments um, focus first on things that drive gross margin and profit profitability. So when you sell this piece of business, what is the time to value? A lot of revenue operators can give you that calculation based on we signed them on Jan 1, they went live March 31st, therefore time to value. But getting really curious how many humans touched that along the way, how many tickets were opened uh, in the implementation process. If there is no ticketing system to drive implementation, how can you lean in and support that system? What is the defect rate post-launch? How many people does it take to support it? How much more do you have to invest in your AWS as you add more end users to your product? If you open up free seats, what is the cost implementation? So there's, there's a lot of ways that you can kind of naturally zoom out in ways that overlap with the revenue operations world. It's the perfect place to start. Understanding the full picture, we talk a lot in the revenue operations space about the customer journey and the customer life cycle and following that beautiful little lucid chart that if this, then that arrows. What are the supporting structures underneath that? that get you there? What is the finance team doing? How are they invoicing? What is the collections process? You don't have to have a finance degree to really get curious on those pieces. Um, understanding different delivery models, understanding different markets, learning the impacts to your HR functions. How can you be a great partner to people teams when it comes to things like structuring and organizational design and succession planning, just really zooming out 
from your world is the first place to start. And that's in a lot of ways how I've ended up where I am. I started as a CSM. I went into kind of a business operations type role. It was like some office management, some um, general management, went into a light CEO role. Then I did client operations where I was full post-sale. Then I went over and did some product operations where I was really just in the trenches with engineering teams, helping them launch new products. So I've seen all these different pockets of the company. And because of that, I can think about what are all the ripple effects that are going to happen when we make each of these decisions. Um, when we're thinking about a pricing model, what does that mean in terms of levers and how does that impact the team that builds our tooling? So the best way to come to make a stepping stone out of strictly revenue operations is to get really curious about the other functions that drive the company. Uh, the other piece is to really understand the tools and systems. A lot of times that's a, a key indicator of how and why they work and getting to a place where information is super portable between those systems. Um, it's a really easy and natural way because a lot of operators are systems focused. Systems and ops are not the same thing, but they are cousins and they should be very, very tightly married. Um, don't marry your cousin, but you get what I mean. And there are, <laughs> there are a lot of other ways that you can kind of understand compliance and scalability and impact in a way that goes just beyond the revenue systems and drivers. Thanks, Jeff. Was, I walked my way right into that one. Oh, I didn't see Don't the question that was metaphors. posted yet. Oh, yeah. It was a great, great analogy. Um, there's a lot to unpack there, Rachel. And so if we were to break this down into buckets, product, finance, um, legal, you mentioned logistics, which isn't really an issue for our company. Um, where would you start? I would start with the most, I would think about it as like rings on a puddle. So I would start first with kind of what does post-sale look like? I know that some in revenue operations to handle CS ops. And so you have a little bit of a, a lens there, but what is like your implementation model look like? What are the costs that go into that? How can you help them optimize to know what they are first and then optimize to reduce them so often that we think like, oh, we'll just, I don't know, throw cheaper bodies at it and it'll get, we'll, we'll make more money. That's oftentimes not the solution. Um, so start that direction. And then I would say at the same time, so it's kind of like going out this way from the revenue, I'm going to call it a bubble that you live in, your revenue specialty. And then at the same time, understand the pieces of the company that are rigid. What is it, um, how does, what are the principles of the people function? What are the principles of your engineering functions? What are the principles of your logistics functions? The things that are, in, are rigid in making a company run, understanding what makes those tick and how, the, how things are similar. So the reason that operators can be very portable between teams is that your foundational um, thought process is the same. You are ingesting information, understanding information, and adjusting your approach and reaction to that information, period. That is all operations is. It is that simple. The simple things are the hardest things. And so if you can do that for your specialty, what does that look like to do that for a development team? What does that look like to do for a product team? What does that look like to do for a global support team and understanding those pieces is super super important i would not race to go get your 
CPA so that you can have gap compliant books, right? Fill your, fill your, you don't have to be any, everything to everyone. And that's been, um, I think that's been an, another really interesting piece of this kind of operational renaissance. There are so many resources and so much outsourcing available and so many good thought partners that knowing what questions to ask and knowing what rocks to turn over has become paramount in being successful as an operator versus knowing which levers to pull. Yeah, it's interesting you touch on finance because I I do have a finance degree. And I also spent the first 10 years of my career in finance, uh, starting in banking, where I was ripping apart small business uh, financials to make loans, and then later working with investors, et cetera. And so when I started my own company, I felt really comfortable tackling those financials. But I also spent a lot of time talking to fellow entrepreneurs that, that didn't have that background. And as you're talking through this, I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, how could I take the 14 years that I spent studying and working in finance and dissect that down into like a week, right? And um, I'm part of Entrepreneurs Organizations, which is the largest um, association for early stage um, entrepreneurs in the world. And they have classes that you go through. And one of them is called Cash Day. And uh, it's pretty simplistic, but they talk about some of these basic things, just about thinking about how you think about managing cash. That's why it's called cash day, not accounting day. Um, one of the first things I learned as a banker is just how many small companies don't have a good collections process and how important that is. Because for example, many companies don't collect very quickly and it's basically the same as giving all of your customers a huge loan. And then you go to the bank and you spend all this money paying for a loan and you could just follow up with on invoices faster and collect them. I'm rambling a bit here and it's because I think I would struggle to give someone advice on how you learn what you need to know in finance without that background. So you, one way to think about that is something that finance teaches you is uh, thinking about things in terms of impact. And so the collections piece is a really good example, uh, understanding where so often your shiny objects are not actually the most effective things to spend your time on. And so you might think, okay, our bank account's getting low. We need to go to the to the bank and get a loan, or I need to go back to my VC, or I need to open up an angel round, or I need to charge more for my products. There's a lot of different ways you think you can solve something. And so often the best answer is not the most obvious answer. And there's a lot of overlap between functions that teach you that skill set. So you don't need to be able to teach someone finance to take a look and say, like, here are the pillars of finance. You are obsessed with de-risking. You're invested in understanding the future state of something and how can you build a model to predict what that future state will look like. There's a lot of different things that can be portable between disciplines and skill sets. And having that lens is incredibly important as you're thinking about things like what does growth look like? How can I have an impact? And that is another way to really make yourself invaluable in a company and to zoom out from the world that you're living in is to think about what is the most impactful thing that we can work on. Are we spending all of our time reacting to our lowest paying customer? Very common thing that startups fall into and being able to say, well, this is what this thing looks like in the context of our full portfolio 
is what makes a leader a leader because they're not focused on delivery and execution. That's that is those are your folks on the front lines and your your kind of your doers are the people that are saying you wanted a system. I gave you a system. This person is saying you asked for a system, but we have one. We're just leveraging it the wrong way. And so being able to understand big picture and long term impact and what is going to move the needle versus what's your low hanging fruit is the stuff that really pays off. There's a lot of gold in in those recommendations. And as you were answering my question, it just sparked so many thoughts about easy ways for people to to learn finance, for example, um, and as well as to learn strategy. So one of the things that we've adopted recently, not recently, in the last year or so, is just the concept of OKRs, objectives and key results for anybody not familiar with it. And not to overcomplicate it, but it's just a methodology. There are many others to sit down and really map out what our strategy is. And the reason that we do that is so that everyone on the team can be on the same page to understand what our priorities are. And so oftentimes people, whether they be operators, whether they be salespeople, what have you, are not clear on what the priority for the company is. And so then they go and they think, well, we need to go work on this project and it's valuable and it adds value to the company. It helps bring in money or save costs, but it's just not a priority. And so I think as you like lean into that, that can be really incredibly impactful. And then secondly, going back to that finance piece for a small company, a lot of it is just figuring out like, when are we going to run out of cash? What can we do to avoid that? Um, and are we running a profitable business, especially based on unit economics? Like, are we selling a product that costs us more to deliver than we charge for it? Um, whether that be the actual product itself, which is far less relevant in a SaaS company, or whether that be the cost to acquire and serve a customer, which is far more relevant, especially right now. And you don't have to know gap accounting to start to wrap your head around that. Um, so I'm basically just regurgitating what you just said. And I think that was a really, really helpful answer. Thanks. And you've hit it, you've hit it spot on. It's it's understanding what are the things that make a business tick. That's That should be table stakes for anybody who wants to grow in their career, but especially to grow in their career as an operator. And that is also a big differentiator between having a RevOps team be part of an operating mindset, um, regardless of your reporting structure versus a VP of sales. A VP of sales has a very specific charge, which is to lead a team to drive revenue faster, smarter, better. And that is very different than someone that's company and keeping a company focused on big picture and high growth. And it just, you have a different um, mindset going into it. So I like the way that you've kind of summarized that. And you're right, you don't have to be I'm not a developer, but I have a good idea of what developer problems are. I'm not a salesperson, but I could fake my way through it if you needed me to. And just kind of having empathy and understanding of roles and functions is what will lead you to ask smart questions and push for better decision-making across the board. I think we've got a question from James, if you'd like to unmute yourself and ask your question. Yeah, sorry, I'm walking through a park, so if it gets loud, that's that. Um, it's okay. Yeah, my question is really that, like, since, to your point, Rachel, you came from a CS background, many of us came from sales or marketing or both, um, and 
as we continue to progress in the RevOps world, where it's all about enabling and driving our sales reps to be more and more efficient and de-risking our entire customer lifecycle, which means effectively productizing that lifecycle. So where do you draw the line there with people be moving into COO roles or moving into the CRO roles as that becomes more and more efficiency driven and more and more kind of, for lack of a better term, productized? Yes. And depending on the size of your company, there is a lot of overlap between the things that these two folks care about. And often the you didn't ask this, but I'm going to mention it anyways. The profile of your CEO is going to really impact the profile of your other C-carrying members of your company. Um, so who you have as your COO in an early stage company is a very, very is very heavily influenced by who your CEO is. And so then that has this ripple effect of like, who is who else has a seat at that table? To answer your question on teams that come from the front lines, I my favorite operators are the folks that come from the front lines because they come in with a level of empathy and understanding that you just can't teach. It's it's why, you know, people that are uh, street smart versus book smart oftentimes have a have an easier time digesting problems very quickly. And so productizing the customer journey, I like the way you phrased this. It's it's the movement that a lot of companies are, are going towards, VCs are pushing towards it. How are you, the predictable revenue model, um, the predictability across a company, we're seeing a big emphasis on predictability post-sale as a result of a lot of these big VC bets that flopped. Um, the distinction of COO versus CRO, it really, again, cop-out answer comes down to the personalities that you have at the table. And a very, very large company, there's a little bit more repeatability in who you see profile-wise and across those different roles. But in a smaller company, you have some flexibility. So a CRO, if they're a true CRO, again, they're owning all of the functions that directly impact revenue. Uh, you can't have a great CRO if they don't own marketing because it's just an, a crucial part of the funnel. Someone that is in revenue operations, if you have a large enough team, uh, by team, I mean everybody that's kind of within that CRO umbrella to effectively, you have enough work to be done. You can build a really robust revenue operations team within that. And then what you can do is instead of having a reporting structure dictate how you work with your fellow operating partners, you have an unofficial, like a pod structure or a steering committee or some sort of kind of like, I don't want to say dotted line approach because those are, those are always a recipe for confusion, but um, being able to work with other people that speak your language is really important. So if you have a RevOps team that reports into a CRO, I, there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of success there, but make sure you're really best friends with your product ops team and your strategy ops folks and your, um, your, your delivery operations people. In terms of career pathing, because I kind of feel that there's, there's a little bit of two, two parts to that question. In terms of career pathing, you can, you can go up through into the CRO role, I think if you have a little bit more 
specialty uh, knowledge there. If you really understand what it means to run a marketing campaign versus understanding the plumbing that's required, I, as a more generalist operator, know that we need to be tracking our attribution, that we need to be focusing on scale. There's some legal and compliance things that I'm aware of. I cannot tell you how to run the campaign. I think that's a really big difference between someone that's going to go up out of operations into a COO role versus someone that's going to go up into a more specialized role because a lot of our C-suite folks these days have a big oper operating component. We're productizing companies, we're de-risking companies, we're making them scalable. So it comes down to subject matter for me, someone that really just cares about running the whole business and pulling all the strings to make the whole thing work for someone that really wants to go deep into that subject matter and drive the teams that execute this piece of the business. And hopefully that speaks a bit to your question, but at the end of the day, they're doing really overlapping things and they need to share each other's language. The best C-suites can speak each other's language and really everybody on C-suite should be able to sell a product. So there's a little bit of that that's, um, that's gonna overlap between, between teams. Yes, wow. exactly. Yeah, plumbing structure versus water. I think, and like, I say this all the time. I can't tell you how to do your job. I can tell you how to do your job better. And that's like, I think a little bit of the difference between a pure operator versus a, a functional leader that knows how to operate. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Rachel. When I think about operations overall, I'm always thinking about how do you build the system so that you can get the output that you need? And it really comes down to like, for example, we had an issue internally that I was calling Jerry and talking about this morning and something slipped through the cracks. And it's just like, this is so simple. It happened because we didn't have an operational process in place. It's just that simple, right? It's nobody's fault because nobody sat down and said, we need to have this operational process in place to avoid this thing slipping through the cracks. Um, I'd love to take this back though, because I want to make sure that we hit on the topic of the podcast, which is what exactly is BizOps? Before I ask that question, though, I want to touch on a couple of things. We talk about this concept of a true CRO, which I don't know, I'm starting to believe less and less in. Um, I have talked to hundreds of CROs and directors and VPs of RevOps in the last year or two, and the number of them that cover sales, marketing, and CS, especially CS, is a small minority. I would say, I would bet it's less than 10%. Um, and so you've got somebody that's a VP of sales getting promoted to CRO, and then they don't own marketing, um, don't own CS. You've got somebody that's in sales ops and they take on the rev ops title, don't own marketing or CS. It seems to me, and correct me if you feel differently, that the first step to moving towards biz ops in a COO role is to just take on marketing and CS. However, Actually, I'll stop there and I'll ask for your opinion and then I'll keep going. I would say not quite. I think your first step towards business operations is caring about the full company equally. And I, that to me is a very big differentiator between moving into more sophisticated revenue operations versus moving kind of out into Switzerland and business operations. I do agree with you on the titling of a CRO that doesn't own revenue driving functions 
is oftentimes an inflated title or a title that someone is growing into. There's a lot of reasons that folks do this, especially in early stage companies. Um, but then I could, I could give you my whole speech about CM, CSMs and account managers and this evolution of like, they're the same role, they're different roles, the same role, they're different roles. And spoiler, I like every company that scales up through ABC, like is probably going to intermingle these things quite a bit. And then that, that's a whole separate, that's, that's a separate spiel. Um, to move into business operations, in some ways, I agree with you that you would be taking on other teams and departments. Uh, one of the things I inherited a marketing operations person. And the first thing I did is I stuck them under a really great revenue operations leader so that they were aligned with their partners in sales ops and CS ops and so they could speak this full funnel. Um, but at the same time, I also owned systems and IT. I also owned legal. I also owned all these other cross-functional functions because if I, I have to care as a business operator about the business first and the function second. Because if for the business to run well, the functions have to be well integrated and cross-functional alignment is my, my biggest problem to be solved. Whereas a revenue operator, their biggest problem to be solved is the uh, dynamics within those teams. So yes, but is I think my answer. Interesting. Yeah, I, I have something I want to sort of piggyback off of that, which is so with what Eddie was asking, Rachel, if, if you don't have, if you don't necessarily have the deepest understanding, if you're in a, a RevOps role today and you're looking to move into a BizOps role and, and you've got some mm -hmm. gaps, let's say, in your level of experience around probably marketing or CS, because sales tends to be the the one everyone's most well-versed in, do you, do you feel like you need to have that coverage first or is it a safer bet to, you know, let me look to take a step back and be more strategic at the business level. And when the time is right, we bring in somebody who's going to replace you in that role that maybe has that deeper understanding across the three core areas, or do you need to have all your bases covered you know, from a sort of bureaucracy standpoint, before you even look to make that move, uh, is it is that wiser? It depends on, so speaking from the perspective of the employee, it depends on your long-term goals. So if you do want to go this kind of um, mile deep inch wide, mm -hmm. go learn the marketing functions, maybe even take a half a step back and take a job doing, uh, a CS role or a marketing role or really kind of get in the trenches of those other parts of the funnel. From where I sit though, if you're trying to move into a more centralized, I would skip past the expertise in those functions because again, the trends are going to repeat themselves across all departments of the business. Those look very similar. At the end of the day, people are trying to get their information more exposed and more connected. And that's kind of, that's, that's unfortunately the oversimplification of a business. And so I would say my answer to that is if you, if you're a sales operator and you, you, you started your job as a BDR and then you moved into a sales role and then you found yourself being the person that pulled all the levers in Salesforce, and then you were given that first sales ops title and you kind of followed this path that so many folks have done, especially in the last five years. And now you're like, okay, I checked the box on running commission reports. I know what a territory plan looks like. I've troubleshooted our caller 500 times this month. Like I'm ready to pull up and out of these weeds. I would skip over. 
unless you want to be a CRO one day and you want to like really understand those revenue functions, like then you, yeah, you can go like go to marketing, go to sale, go to rev, um, CSM, go those places. If you want to be go more towards this operational COO path, I would move out to full business strategy as your next step. Mm -hmm. And I would start running the analysis of here's what our best customers look like and here's how they perform post-sale and this is the demand that they have on our engineering teams based on number of tickets submitted and uptime available and global present. There's a lot of things that you can do that are naturally within your, your kind of your sales wheelhouse and the skills that you already have, but that impact the entire company. Or you can even say things like for every one end user of our product, they speak to 15 people at our company and our company is 20 people large. I have an idea of how to get this to eight people or four people, or I have an idea of how to make pod structures that get us to the next level. Like these are the kind of like big picture impacts that would send you on a path of pure operations versus a functional uh, expertise that knows how to operate. I guess what I'm not clear on that is then is how is that different than what a CRO may be thinking about? A CRO is thinking about how to do the job uh, and how to execute the tasks. I'm thinking about how to begin with. Yeah, and how to uh, how to create the blueprint, but not how to continue to execute on it. Okay. Um, I know that you need to pull a mailing list. I don't care. I, I say that loosely. I don't care who's in your mailing list. I care that you know how to scrub for emails that are going to kill our deliverability. And so I'm a thought partner to the folks that care about the execution of that work um, versus being able to do the work. If, is, does that, is that helpful or am I still, am I still, am I living in my ops ivory tower? Maybe I, I think what I'm struggling with is then understanding how, where the where the breakdown is between who's thinking about what, who's who's executing what, and who's charging others to execute when you have a COO and a CRO in that scenario. Yep. Let me add some color to this, Rachel, and you can respond to this as well. Please. I think a lot of the debate around the CRO is that if you have a CRO that really doesn't understand marketing. And there's this whole debate about who should RevOps report to. Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure why, but I have far less of a problem if RevOps reports to a COO that doesn't understand marketing than a CRO that doesn't understand marketing. Because I don't expect that of a COO. I expect a COO to come in and say, okay, like this is how we need to operate. We need to do X, Y, Z. We're thinking about sales and marketing, but we're also thinking about legal. We're thinking about HR. We're thinking about IT. And I'm not an expert in all these fields, but I'm going to make sure that we get things done right. And to your point, I've got purview on what our corporate strategy is and what our top priorities are versus CRO. I expect to be a little bit more in the weeds on how do we attract retain and grow our customers. And a lot of the things that you mentioned are not covered by CROs and are not covered by RevOps, but I personally feel like they should be. I mean, if we're like, our engineering resources are being taxed by our customers because ultimately that's a CS issue. I want to own that in RevOps. 
I want to understand like, why are we attracting those customers and spending so much money to retain them? That to me seems like a RevOps issue. Um, Mm -hmm. And if I'm reporting to a CRO that doesn't understand that, um, I don't know, to me that that seems a little problematic versus a COO who I expect to be much more broad. Yeah, I think that's what I'm not clear on is to me, the, the idealized CRO is that C has that breath that the COO has. So why have both? Mm, I disagree with you a little bit on the breadth there. And okay. there is so much a COO is focused on that is well beyond the revenue funnel. Okay. And you'll experience that differently in a smaller company. And it's it's something to to point out that if you're if you're a team of hundred people or less, I don't know why you would have a COO and a CRO. One of them is an inflated title in that case because there's just enough not there's not enough jobs to be done at that at that scale. Um, it comes down to the what versus the how. So a, I, as an operator, if I'm a COO, someone on my, I need to make sure that someone on my team cares how you are hitting your that you have what you need to hit your goals. And your CRO cares what is going to get you to your goals. Your CRO is managing the folks that know that I need my top of funnel to be, I don't know, 100x in revenue in order, based on our close rate and our win rate and our timeline and all those things, right? Mm -hmm. To get to this bottom of funnel number to hit our quarterly targets. I don't, as an operator, it is not up to me to tell you that that means you need to launch LinkedIn campaigns and go to 500 conferences and do this thing and um, nurture this much and farm for that much. And like, that is the, the what that a CRO needs to be really clear on and or hire people that are smart enough to be really clear on that so that that can get done well. What I'm going to care about as an operator is making sure that we have folks in the company that care about tracking the attribution, um, sending the emails, measuring their impact, not overlapping with other functions, not violating GDPR, um, all of those types of things. I care about what, how you execute on it. I don't care what I say. I care. I care because I care about the company, but it's not my job to say, what are the pieces that get you there? My job is to say, here's the ecosystem in which you can execute the tasks to get you there. You know, like, that so in that sense, um, a CRO will also care about that, right? Like they also know that they need tools and technology and process. And in order for them to be successful, they have to know what great looks like to show up as a great partner to me to say, I need, I need all the things I need to do my job. But where they'll stop is in an ideal, in an ideal circumstance where a CRO stops is they say, I need, I need every person on my team to have access to, I don't know, um, an email sequencing tool. Then that should come out of the CRO's camp to lead, not to influence, but to lead a CRO's camp to lead. Um, into a neutral and operating function, a systems function, et cetera, to go out and say, okay, we have these three options. This is the price. This is the scalability. These are the integration options, et cetera. 
the operations team is leading this kind of down select thing with the influence of the CRO. And then it kind of comes back in there to deploy. So it's this partnership model of like, I care about big picture. I care about execution. I care about success. You care about what goes into it. I will build you the house. You pick the furniture. I will build you the house. You pick the location. It's this kind of like this, it takes multiple people to run a company. And when you're a lean shop, you're doing all these things. You're like, wait, I care about the house and the furniture and the faucets and the school system all at the same time. As you scale and you get the luxury of adding these different roles, that's when you start to see these specializations and this ability to go into, um, it's a full-time job to care about your organizational design, your flow of information cross-functionally, um, your employee uh, life cycle management right? A lot of that stuff will fall under an operator in a way that just doesn't hit functional leaders because as long as they're hitting their budget, fine. I care that you hit, help you hit your budget in a way that makes sense and aligns with how other teams are hitting their budget. Helpful? I don't think I've sold Jerry yet. I have a new goal of by in the next 28 minutes to convince Jerry of my vision. No, I think I realized where my shortcoming here was. It's just thinking about the size of the organization. Uh, I'm I'm very much stuck in the the small mindset still, uh, but thinking about as that company scales up, just how much more work it becomes to dedicate focusing on what we're saying CRO should be focused on versus the, the operation side. Absolutely. And yeah. your complexity grows as that grows. So not only the size of the, like the company and your org chart will grow, the complexity will grow, the compliance factors will grow. Um, your SLAs to your customers will, will grow. And there's just kind of this and, and, and model to the point where you have to run a really tight ship because um, when you think about degrees of communication as, as one, one really major piece of it, when you have two people in a room, your communication's going back and forth. When you have three people in a room, your communication's going like this. When you have 10 people in a room, you have, it's, it's truly an exponential factor of the way information flows between them. And so that's where you start to get complexity within an organization that requires forward thinking operations in a way that that's all you can think about so that your functional leaders can think about their job. Just as I need my CTO to be obsessed with building best-in-class product and shipping it reliably and quickly. You need your CRO to be obsessed with driving best-in-class sales, marketing, customer success experiences that are measurable and repeatable and scalable. And therefore, neither of those functional leaders can give the full ecosystem the thought that it requires. And that's the whole point. Every person on a leadership team needs to hold a really important piece of that puzzle. Rachel, you're sparking so many comments and questions in my mind, but I want to make sure I ask the main question that I tried to a few minutes ago, which is how exactly do you define biz ops? Yes. What is business operations? That is, my parents still don't know what I do. And so maybe I'll send them this None of our parents do. That's true too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, someone once asked me, what's it like to work in IT? And I said, that's, I don't know. Um, what is business operations? Business operations is the collection of all of the things that make the business run, which is a non-answer answer. I know. 
business operation looks very different depending on the stage of the company and the deliver the deliverability of the products themselves. If you're in a B to C company or a B2B to C company versus a true B2B company, your business operations functions are going to look much different um, as a result. So for myself, I spend the majority of my career, almost all of my career in a B2B to C delivery model. And I know how they work. I tend to be drawn to businesses that have a, um, a very complex post-sale, a heavy implementation process, um, a white glove, high touch onboarding model, because that brand of business operations is one that I know very well. Why do I tell you that? Because business operations in a company like DoorDash, where their membership base is their revenue driver versus a company like Salesforce, where their business base is the revenue driver is going to look very, very different. In your companies that are loosely series B through like a small corporate, the best business operation models are centralized but embedded. That's what I love to build. This is my favorite type of business operations in that you have someone like me that speaks the language of all kind of the like people systems process across your 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 departments. Today, I own revenue operations, true revenue operations. I own revenue operations and the team under that. I own product operations. I own um, our business insights for the company. And then I own some of our kind of like our technical writing, our CRM, or that sort of thing. As we scale, my job won't exist anymore. And that is something that I am um, not only aware of, but encourage. It's something I bring up that if I am successful, I will work myself out of a job 10 out of 10 times. And I've done it several times in my career because I will have built an engine that is so effective. I will have built such strong business operations that the job that I was hired to do doesn't exist on the other side. The company has changed, the environment has changed, et cetera. Um, at that point, you get into a more truly embedded model where you then have many business operations teams and either your verticals or your, um, your business lines, that sort of thing. So in LinkedIn, which was a huge driver of the business operations model that I, I love today, he built a centralized model when they were small that looked like this. You had folks that either parachuted in almost like a chief of staff type format of like embed and emerging functions and units. And then they would pull out as soon as it's built or they ran different um, functions within it. Now that they're so large, they have like different pods among them. So business operations, it is the function that's sole job is to optimize the systems, the processes and the connectivity within the company to make the company run more predictably and faster. I Have I answered your question or sparked more questions? Both. So I wanted this like cookie cutter answer like you get when you Google something. <laughs> you gave me part of it. So what okay. I was hoping to hear was, okay, RevOps is sales marketing and CS and BizOps is product and it's finance and it's legal. And you gave a little bit of that, but you also gave a lot more nuance to say it depends. We're, and that's, that is the best and worst part about the job. It is never the same thing across more than one company. And it makes the PR of it really, really hard. Um, but 
it also gives a lot of job security because we can mold to fit your needs. So we are connective tissue. Business operations is connective tissue between departments, which is why a lot of revenue operators kind of see a little bit of a turf war there because that's really what RevOps is just within the revenue discipline. Um, generally, you own the operations of any department that is large enough to warrant kind of centralizing them versus if you have a, a two-person team somewhere, they're going to run their own shop because it's more work for me to understand what they're doing. And then it comes down to kind of what is the top-down operating structure of the business and how can you support that? So a lot of chief of staffs do a lot of business operations type functions of being that connective tissue between teams. Oftentimes you see business operations owning um, like forward thinking insights and analytics. That's a really common evolution for large companies to get to. Um, if you were to look at like a Google or uh, Uber, those kinds of companies, they do a lot more like analytics and big bets versus small companies. And then you just kind of catch what isn't specialized in other places. <laughs> we're a wonderful dumping ground of execution. Um, so business operations is systems, it is best practices, and it is functional support. Lot to digest there. That's very helpful. <laughs> um, how about I ask the same question in a very different way? How Please. do you think about a company evolving from the earliest stages? And let's say that they have a, a small sales and marketing team or are building one. They've got some revenue leader leaders and uh, RevOps leader. How do you see those individuals in the company evolving into a point where you have biz ops, where you have possibly a CRO and a COO who should report to whom? And you know, you said that sub 100 people, you don't see a CRO and a COO making sense together. When does it? So how, how does that evolve from, let's say, a team of like, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 people to 100 to 200 to 500 to 1,000 in terms of those roles? There are a few ways to think about these uh, saturation points, really. It's when the amount of code switching you're doing in that role is too much for kind of one function or one person. So your first sales team is also like your first sales hire is probably the person that set up your CRM. That's okay. It's not great, especially for those of you that run, you know, agencies that fix the problems of those ambitious first time sales leaders, but sure, you you've never seen have, that, right? Never seen it. Never heard of it. <laughs> There's a field for everything. And in the early days, the same person could and should do a lot of the kind of soup to nuts of the role because they understand it best. When you get to a point where you've got several people using a system, you should centralize the ownership of that system. And I say system to mean quite literally the tool, but also the, the, the mindset and the standard operating procedures around it. When you should centralize business operations as a company, generally it's around these like pivot points of 75 to 100 people. It's not scientific, but that's where you start to see a point where you're kind of going from this all hands on deck model from like zero to 50 people into, I mean, within reason, right? Like you still have a salesperson and you have a, a, someone that writes the code, but like kind of it's all hands on deck when something comes up. So zero to like 50-ish is 
kind of everybody in the trenches and there's like 50 to 150 is where you start to formalize these roles and start to really spin them out to be to to have ownership and so that's where you start to see actual business operations versus just general catch-all employees so oftentimes you'll see an early employee kind of spin into this this function because they know where the skeletons lie they know the pieces of the business and then you hit this next saturation point where you're in the several hundred phase. So around the time that a company would traditionally be raising a series C and I know our, our raise, our raise milestones are going to be continuing to shift in the next couple of years, but around your like series A company, then your series B companies where you start to formalize your operations function and you really should centralize your operations, regardless of your reporting structure, centralize your operators and your operating decisions. Otherwise you're gonna have 500 project management tools in two years, and you're not going to know where any of your statuses are. Then you get into your series C and beyond, and that's where you can really start to formalize roles, really have all your different functions leading. Um, so it's complexity of the company, and it's the amount of work to be done by function, and it will change over time depending on the, the nature of your company. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that it's sort of that cliche answer. People are always ask us like, well, when should you hire RevOps? When should you hire this out of the other? And it's like, well, it's when you have 40 hours a week of work for somebody to focus on one thing or 10 things, whatever it is. Um, obviously it's difficult to put people in a role where they have to do 10 different jobs. Um, but it is that cliche answer where people will sometimes say like, well, when do I hire this person full time? And it's like, well, you don't do that when you don't have very much work for them. Absolutely. And this is, it's something that I do in, through my consulting is I've told a number of early stage businesses, you don't want me full time. You don't spend your money on me full time when you're small. There's a lot of ways we can partner. There's a lot of ways that we can help you build a really great foundation. And then you should grow into your kind of sophisticated operators, for lack of a better word, because you don't need a VP of revenue operations when you're a 50 person company. It's just, you don't have enough work to be done. You don't have enough complexity to be done unless you're running like the most lean shop you've ever seen in your life. And then kudos to you if, if that's, if that's the business you built. And so you kind of grow into these specialties and into these places where people can really be best in class at what they're doing versus understanding kind of the full picture. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. Well, okay. So I'm going to circle back to kind of where we started earlier, Rachel, and talk about like the CEO role. And I think this is really interesting. You touched on a couple of points about how the CEO dictates so much of what's in the business. And I can obviously speak with firsthand experience here. When I think about the type of people that I want to hire in my organization and what I want to delegate, it comes down to a combination of things. It's A, what am I good at doing? What do I like doing? Um, and what do I have time to do? And um, like many people, I came into this company in this role with certain skill sets, right? Even if you start a company at 22, you even, you still have skill sets you bring to the table, but especially if you wait a few years before starting a company, um, I have a really strong background in sales and marketing. Uh, both Jerry and I are pretty good at, at revenue operations. Neither of us know anything about any, any other type of operations. And it's like, okay, how do you solve for that? Right. And I think the point that you made is that. Anytime we think about like bringing on going to, oh, it looks like my microphone went out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, whatever. 
Anytime you guys can still hear me, right? Yes. So anytime that you think about bringing on a senior leader, especially in an early stage company, it's always going to be something that has to complement the skills, especially of the CEO, right? And so oftentimes, like a CEO may not be somebody with my background where it's been primarily sales. They could be a developer. That's a very different scenario, right? Yep, absolutely. It comes down to when you hit a point that someone knows what good looks like better than you do um, and you can afford it. And so that's really where you start to bring in people that can do those specializations. So um, if you know what good looks like and you're launching an app and you're not technical, but you can partner with an outsourced firm or a part-time co-founder or something, um, you can trust that you know what good looks like enough to lead that person to do your V1. Then you'll hit these points where you've got to know as a leader, and I say, I, I say leader at any stage of your career, you can be a leader when you're two years into your career if you have the right mindset. Um, you don't have to have a team and a management title and that sort of thing. A leader mindset is someone who knows how to find people that know what good and great look like better than they do. And that's where delegation comes into play. And that's where um, in, a, in a recent startup I had, I had joined, I joined at Series A. I was the first person holding an operations title. Um, and I, my charge was to understand where the points are, the pain point, where does it hurt? Where are choke points? And where do we need to go into next? And so I came in and I did all of the operations functions, which meant I was doing, you know, an X percent of 500 things. And I knew like, okay, well, I've officially hit my points of being good at knowing where to set up Salesforce. I redid the opportunity stages. We cleaned up the reporting. We built the dashboards. Um, we deduped a lot of data. We kind of did the foundational stuff. And I was like, well, I've hit my ceiling. I'm going to bring in a sales operator to come in and build the next wave and they did and they exceed expectation and they were wonderful and then through them we built out you know the full rev ops engine and we pulled them up and we gave them direct reports and so it comes to this point of knowing when to bring in a different perspective a complementary perspective is when you hit your ceiling of knowing what that success should and could look like for that thing um and that's where you know, a lot of people can wear multiple hats until a certain point, and then you kind of start to spin things off. So working alongside people that are really great at what they do and being really curious about how they do it is what has given me that ability to sit central. And working alongside great product managers has given me an idea of how to take a product management mindset to everything I do. I'm not a product manager. I will never be a product manager. I think it is a really tough job, but I know what great looks like to know how to support them. And so it kind of goes into that space. And that's what makes people like you and Jerry so great at revenue operations is that you've seen it executed so many different ways, so many different times. You can bring that really amazing perspective of this is what great looks like. And this is why you can trust us to lead you there um, versus you know trying to be everything to everyone. Yeah, I think that that's a really important point. But, you know, in a startup, you obviously do need some people to try to just figure things out that they have no experience in. And I experience yeah. this firsthand every day as a founder CEO, because there's no choice, right? Whether I'm good at it or not, like, I just have to do my best. And I do think like, 
as a founder, it is frustrating. Not that like we've really hired too many people like this, but the concept is frustrating to think about people that have the mentality of like, that's not something I know how to do. It's not part of my job description. I need somebody to show this to me. And it's like, I personally feel this pain every day of like, okay, I've got to figure out how to do X, Y, Z, like oh, HR, payroll, that kind of stuff, like compliance, like my God, like it's hard to think of examples that are more outside of my area of expertise and comfort zone, but it's just like, okay, we have to figure it out. How can I find, the first thing I'm always looking for is how can I find somebody that knows something about this that I can talk to? Or mm -hmm. I start Googling it, or I will say like, what are the top three books on a given thing? And this really depends on whether I'm trying to plug a hole or whether I'm trying to figure out a better practice or an operational model. I'll take HR as an example where I've really been pouring a lot of energy into it over the last year to think about like, how do we build an amazing team? And it's not difficult to go and Google, what are the top three books? And then go ask people like recruiters and people that have managed lots of people, what books do you recommend? And then go through and read through these three books and think, okay, I now have a wealth of information. Now it comes down to actually implementing it. It's like, great, like I can read a book, doesn't make me an expert. Um, but how do we put this into action? And what I so often find is, is that oftentimes when you do that, if you actually implement it, you can be steps way ahead of people that even do this professionally, because oftentimes like, yeah, they kind of anecdotally know how things are supposed to go, but they're all kind of like operating off of gut feel. They never really sat down to perfect the, the, the operation, to perfect the system and the process. And I find oftentimes that if you really sit down and do that, um, you can do that. I mean, like, let's just take LinkedIn as an example. Like Rachel, you're active on LinkedIn just as much as I am. And it will amaze me how oftentimes I will see people that have five, 10 years of marketing experience that struggle on LinkedIn because they haven't gone through that process that I just described versus like just going and saying, Oh, Justin Welsh is the expert on LinkedIn. Let me go spend 150 bucks on his course and spend 20 hours, like digesting every nugget that he has to share and then go and actually implement that. Absolutely. And that's what sets apart early stage early stage employees are so, so valuable because to your point, they get the reps in. And I think that's a really interesting, it's, it's so, it's so silly to say, but startup years can be like dog years in a business because you're putting in the reps, the business is changing underneath you. You're changing with the business. And suddenly someone that was a, I don't know, a, a politics major in college is running payroll and answering questions and fixing the printer back when we were in, in offices and all of these different things. And so you have to learn by doing and learning by doing is the most powerful thing that you can do. So what do you do if you can't learn by doing, if you're not a founder and you aren't running your own show, the best tool I've learned is to create, um, uh, to break out of echo chambers. So often people get this advice of like, fill your LinkedIn feed with the best sellers in the world and you will become a bestseller. Well, great if that's, if that's your goal. But what I've done as an operator, especially as someone who wants to be a very high impact generalist operator is I fill my ecosystem with questions I didn't know I should be asking. So communities are a really great way to do this. LinkedIn is its own version of community, community to do this. I very intentionally diversify my feed and I diversify the voices in my space. And there are so many times I'm in this amazing operators group where there are questions that are asked there where I'm like, I didn't even know I need to look around that corner, let alone have the answer that I didn't know I should Google it. And we live in a society where we kind of think that um, 
yes, Google's powerful and Corey made a point that it's a good starting point, but you have to know what question to ask to know how to ask it, right? And there's some things that are kind of no brainer, like how do I pay my employees? Everybody knows you should probably pay your employees. And then you'll end up in some blog article that's like, well, you need to also set aside this. And if you're running your 401k, you need to think about um, your testing to make sure you're not violating like highly complicated. Like you can pull a thread very easily, but how powerful is it to be around people that are having conversations that are one click above where you are and learn from them? So I see conversations all the time of like, oh, our taxation model in Western Europe looks different than this piece. And here's how we're reconciling it. Like, well, I'm not going international right now, but now when I do, there's going to be this seed planted in my mind that I need to think about this problem to be solved. And so it's partially knowing how to look for the answers, 100% putting them into practice whenever and however you can, but exposing yourself um, to people that are really great in areas that you're not, will start to plant these ideas of uh, what, what you should be starting to think about so that you, you have the new things to Google. Um, otherwise, you're just going to be stuck in the here and now. Wow. Yeah, I second everything that you said. And one of the big challenges with Google is that it, it produces results that are engineered for SEO that are oftentimes outdated. It's not necessarily the most up-to-date cutting edge thing where communities tend to tend to share that information. Um, I'm a member of multiple communities. I mentioned EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. Um, for that exact reason, because I'll walk into a room and it's a bunch of entrepreneurs talking about the challenges we're all having and somebody will mention something that I never even thought of. Absolutely. And um, that's, it runs into the, you don't know what you don't know. And that's why first time founders surround the, the right first time founders surround themselves with people that have seen what those challenges look like so that they don't make the same mistakes that you put yourself in a position to learn from other people's mistakes before you make them. Um, and that way you can learn the great lessons without paying the price. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. I don't have any more questions and we're almost at time anyway. So I think I'm going to wrap it here unless Jerry, you have any questions or Rachel, you have anything to add? I have a big question. Jerry, have I changed your mind? I had 28 minutes to do it and I have yes. two minutes left. Yes, I think within five minutes of stating that we were we were good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. All right. I feel I feel accomplished. We can yep. we can take it out here. But thank you guys so much for for holding the space for me. Thank you for joining us and sharing a wealth of knowledge here. Still digesting most of it, um, but I really appreciate your time and and your contribution here. I appreciate it. Thanks so much.